Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. All right, we are live. I'm here with Megan. <laughs> hey, Megan. Hey, RJ. How are you? Good. This is like the backstage um, banter is great. It reminds me of like being at a show and then like everyone comes out and everyone wonders what we were talking about. But wasn't that I interesting? I know. RJ's been giving me a hard time. That's all. <laughs> um, we are and we're happy. discovering a mutual love of chocolate. So so much good chocolate. Yeah. Chocolate and peanut butter, I think, is the best combo. And that that existed Decades before the goose and tab uh, thing. You mean before the HF Pod Whoop Plus collab? Yeah, right. Good point. <laughs> um, that was we are, first. 
We are happy that you all are here. And Michael Myers, who's watching on YouTube, says, Happy Hampton 09 anniversary. That is a great point. I think I like wasn't even going to say that. Um, so thank you, Michael, for reminding us that it's Hampton 09 anniversary. Um, if you are a subscriber to Osiris Premium, then today we you'll hear a new episode, bonus episode, where we talk about our favorite, not our favorite, a recommended album from 1990, the uh, the year that we are in to talk about fish today. So if you're interested in, in seeing what we're up to, check out OsirisPod.com slash premium. Uh, you get a bonus episode every week, which is mostly more of us talking nonsense, um, but also ad-free episodes. So um, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that Megan and I both love peanut butter and chocolate. So what do you know? And you can also hear us talk about Mexico. I don't know Good that point. I did so very eloquently, but... <laughs> Friday was hard. Friday was yeah. hard for everybody, but we did talk about Mexico. And for those of you who who um, tuned into the recap, Megan and I were both still traveling. And um, I think that the headline was that Mexico is so fun. And I don't know. I think it's like, you know, I, I understand the the idea that it's only for it's only for like the super rich fish fans, but I would rather pay to go to Mexico and see what fewer fish shows in the United States. That's my, that's like where I am right now. That yeah, might be controversial. And I think a lot of people like save up for it and it's kind of a special thing they do every year. It doesn't seem like it's just for people who can do things like that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, this is like, it's the one time a year that my wife and I leave um, our kids and so, anyway, Mexico was great. Um, that's the recap. the The music was was very good, but um, I, maybe there is a, like a cooling off period, or or there's like asterisks or something because it really is like about the atmosphere. Yeah, I think there's just a major attendance bias in Mexico. I think it's hard to have a bad show in Mexico, like as a fan. Yeah. yeah. And maybe the band's just super relaxed too. I don't know. I thought every show was great, and then I came back and found out maybe they weren't. All that great. <laughs> <laughs> you found out. You found know. out after the fact. <laughs> yeah, I listened I to the I had fun. I thought I had fun, but then I uh, found out I didn't. Um, exactly. <laughs> speaking of attendance bias, we saw our friend Brian from Attendance Bias yeah. in Mexico. I actually, one night I was going to get a drink or, or use the bathroom or both probably, and um, he was eating tacos and shooting the shit with some people, and um, it was good to see him down there. I hope he had fun. I'm sure he did. Yeah, he did. He said that he ran into you. We've become really good friends, so I got to hang out with him a little bit in Mexico, too. It was awesome and just fun to talk to him about the shows and and enjoy that experience with him. Nice. Um, okay, so we are continuing our 40 for 40 project where we bring you 40 fish inside project shows to celebrate the band's 40th anniversary. We've t- we took a week break, obviously, from Mexico, but now we're back. And um, today we're talking about 913 1990 um, from the wetlands in New York City. And Brian is going to join us soon. Um, Jonathan is, I think, out today. So I think it's the two of us. And then uh, Brian will pop in at some point. Um, but I guess before we do that, um, Megan, what's um, what's what's your exposure been to 1990 Fish? Not a ton. I mean, I've listened to a little bit, but it's not like I collected tapes from 1990. I was really someone who collected tapes to shows that I'd been to. And shows that kind of like from when I started going to see fish onward, I never really looked back historically until I started listening to HF pod, to be honest, that was kind of my introduction to like looking back at fish historically. So this project has been incredible because listening to them chronologically has just been super interesting for me. And 
this year is really cool. This is an interesting year in fish history, and it's really fun to listen back to the show. How about you? Did you collect a lot of tapes from ninety? You know, I I did, and I should um I should share. I wonder if I can do it in here. I should share my photo of the the J cards, which are ha- hanging behind me on my wall from this show, because um, I I have them here. Um, this was a show that I I had early on, and it was kind of like a I think it was a a, a well circulated tape. Um, this was the eighth and last show at the Wetlands. I know. I was this just looking crazy. at that too. Yeah, they opened in like what early 1989 and they played there yeah eight times over those two years and then that was it they grew too big it was a pretty it was a pretty wild show and a lot of really fun stuff happened um so i'm going to tweet this photo of my j cards that i took just in case anyone wants to see my handwritten cell list from i don't know 1995 i guess when i got it but um what else do we need to to say before we get into the music? There's kind of a lot to discuss here. A lot of debuts, a lot of interesting covers. There's a guest. There's a guest appearance. There's a lot. A lot going on. Yeah. Well, do you want to go to Meg's corner and hear about what was going on in Fish in 1990? I do. I do. Okay. Great. I do. Awesome. <laughs> so in while you do that, can I eat yeah? a piece of chocolate? Okay. Yeah. Just maybe okay. mute yourself so okay. you don't like hear right. you chewing okay, or unwrapping. Great. Okay. <laughs> so in 1990, Fish played 150 shows, which is just bonkers. It's the most shows they've ever played in one year in their whole career. So to me, this is the year of, this is the hustle, you know, in 1989 was like expansion. They were really going places they hadn't been before. In 1990, they're just hustling. You know, they travel more than ever before in 1990. They're doing multiple runs in the South, the Midwest, Colorado, they're sharing stages with bands like Widespread Panic, Blues Traveler, Cram Rescue Unit. Then over July and August, they take this break from touring and they just write a ton of music that's going to become Picture of Nectar. And Lawn Boy is going to be released in September. That's going to be released on Absolute Agogo. And even though this label is going to go bankrupt, this album did pretty well. And it actually started to get Fish some notice in the news media as well. They're going to play a packed house, the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, on Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. Everyone knows how special that venue is. You think about like what's going on right now for Goose right there this this coming up week. Like the Capitol Theater is it's an epic theater, and just knowing that they played a sold out show there in 1990 just tells you kind of like what was happening for Fish then. And at the end of the year, uh, Sue Drew, the talent scout, she's going to go and see them at the Marquee Club in New York, and she's going to give them her card and introduce them to Electra Records, which is going to be a big deal for them moving forward. And musically, they've got some cool things going on. They're introducing more bluegrass and barbershop songs like Caroline, Sweet Adeline, and Uncle Penn. We've got Hold Your Head Up becoming Fisherman's intro music this year. And then one of the things that's super cool, especially in regards to the show we're going to talk about today, is that they're going to invent the musical secret language. And the debut of that language at this show is so fucking cool. I think it's just really interesting that when they're home writing these songs for Picture of Nectar and they're not on stage, they decide to invent this way to talk to each other in a really unique way on stage and also communicate with the audience. So I just think it's really interesting. And this show is, I mean, there are 12 songs debuted at this show, which is just nuts. And this year in 1990, they're going to debut 39 songs. 39 songs in one year. Yeah. Yeah, we've got songs like Bouncing Around the Room, Squirming Coil, Rift, Tube, Tweezer, Cavern, Runaway Gym, Horn, Stash, Megillah, 
Landlady, Buried Alive, Destiny Unbound, Eliza, Gumbo, and Llama. Classic, classic fish. And like like typical Trey, I think, he can't like really wait till the next thing. It's like typically yeah. you would like tour on an album, you know, and then like they're already they're already putting out songs this year from their album three years from now. <laughs> they just like can't crazy. they just like can't wait. Um they were writing so much new stuff and um it's really interesting. Um the the opener, well actually before we get into that, I just wanna um just I promise I won't do this anymore, but just to go back to Mexico for a second, the incredible perp said he picked, it was either M- Mexico or MSG for him this year, picked MSG, maybe next year he'll flip it. And I just, I just want to say that makes sense. I'm not going to any MSG shows this year for better and worse, but um, so you can do it. You can do it. You just have to, you know, miss other shows. Um, that okay. makes a lot of sense. Brian, come find me at MSG. <laughs> um, so this is like a really different sounding band from 89 i feel like maybe i've said that mm-hmm. every time we've done every time we've yeah. done the show so far but doesn't it seem like they're like a real like a real band not even like a bar band it sound they sound like a real touring band at this point it's like super tight it's really it's just i don't know but to me it sounded like from the beginning i'm like wow this is like a really really solid solid go yeah they're super confident and they're playing really well i mean they're not missing a beat they're playing really really you know, they're playing a lot of like complicated new songs and they're playing tons of new songs and playing them really well, which I think just shows how much they're probably rehearsing. And they sound, yeah, they sound great. I mean, there's not a lot of variation or improv in in these shows, but there's definitely still some like unique soloing and kind of like interplay and talk between the band members. But it's definitely a band that is like working on their songs and working on, you know, performing last week um, or two weeks ago, excuse me, when we had Brian Weinstein from Attendance Bias on, he was talking about how the band in the late 80s, early 90s is really starting to focus on all their music and playing lots of music. And that's maybe one of the reasons why they're not jamming so much. So that made a lot of sense to me. And I see that here too. Yeah. Um, and just, just like that, just in time to discuss the opener, we have the closer, Brian Brinkman joining <laughs> us. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. I have my coffee because coffee <laughs> is for closers. <laughs> um, we were just getting into it, Brian. We get, we went through Meg's corner where she set up the 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 year in fish, and there'll be more talk of that. But we're coming we're coming out of the <laughs> gate here with a debut of the landlady and. Um, this Wetlands show, Brian, just just the one thing we mentioned is that this was their eighth and final Wetlands show over the course of a couple of years. And they, they will never play there again after this. And this was a good one to to go out on. But um, Landlady, Divided Sky, Foam, and then the first, that debut of Tube. That's like a pretty pretty solid way to start a show. Do you know what else debuted on September 13th, 1990? <laughs> I'm going to find out. Law and order. Really? <laughs> that is just wow. fantastic. Thursday night, huh? Was it a Thursday night, night show? Thursday so. night, September 13th, 1990. The wow. debut of <laughs> Law and Order. So many spinoffs, so much television, so many cold cases that will suddenly be solved in 45 minutes oh, time. Just amazing, So many actors amazing getting stuff. work in New York City. Yeah, Brian. I feel like, isn't that where Chris O'Donnell is still acting today? 
I believe Brian, so. Brian, I can't believe, I feel like most people come into a show late and they got to like try to like catch up and, you know, like maybe <laughs> wait a few minutes, but you just come in and drop a bomb immediately. It's awesome. It's a huge bomb, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Is there any more rewatchable show? Like, is there any more rewatchable show than, than Law and Order? You can just like dive in know. and you're just, you're just going and you, you can just you do question it. and then have faith in the justice system <laughs> all in one city. It's very um, satisfying. Uh, um, very satisfying. Mm-hmm. So the land, okay. Then the landlady also, also. And the did, landlady yes. dedicated to the satisfying. spirit of Carlos. Yes. Yeah. Although it does, Fishnet does, does say that it's the first known performance. So it's interesting. Yeah, why that are two, they still, like flagging that? They, yeah. There's some that mm-hmm. are, that are not, that are, that are just like debut, but, um, this is for some reason is, you know, maybe they, there's a possibility. I guess there's a possibility that all of these things were played like pre 90, well, what three, but. Is it because it comes after Punchy and I was retired like 10 months later or earlier? So that's why they don't know if this is the, you know, and they played a couple of those shows this summer that they, I don't think we have a set list or circulation for. Is that true? There is, I'm just looking through the 1990 there's no known set list from the ranch on september 2nd mm-hmm. august 4th is an unannounced private party no known set list from the from ardmore pennsylvania the cabaret on july 8th there's That's a, the ardmore music hall i just want you to know that just for the record that is now the That's ardmore amazing. music hall. Yeah. oh wow it's amazing that's incredible right down the street from me the last known show is 616 1990 from townsend family park in vermont um so yeah this could be there could be other performances of this obviously this was played within punch in the eye but um a notable opener that will go on to really dominate their performances over the next four years and then will become this what was it like a 15 year no it was probably like a 20 year gap between the last Mm -hmm. time it was played and then it was it was dick's 2015 and then it's kind of been scattered it's been this announcement that uh they're gonna play a big show when they open it until alpine Mm -hmm. night 3 2022 when they opened it (laughs) and then did not (laughs) i can't wait until you don't have to i can't wait until you don't have to use alpine night 3 anymore in your your analyses um the show that should not be named I no, first saw be. I saw my first landlady ever at, at Mexico 2020. Wow, Mexico really? 2020. Yeah, because they played it in 20s. I'm just pulling up all the stats. There's so many 90, 91, 92, 93, 94 performances, and then it stops. And there's a yeah. 768 show gap before Dick's 2015. Mexico and another one and another one before they busted it out at that amazing Alpine show. That was an uh, amazing night closing night. show that absolutely ruled. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you were noting, I, I, you were noting tube. I have a lot on tube. Can we jump into tube? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it. a, it's a jam chart jam chart debut, which is which is hard to hard to pull off. But um, and I was saying before you joined, Brian, I think this is yeah. like a band that sounds not like a bar band, but like a touring band. Um. I was thinking you know. about that during Divided Sky and Foam. Like my only yeah. note mm-hmm. for Foam is that we're just in an era where every single version of Foam somehow slays, and it really makes you you forget how complicated of a song it is because it just it's it's flawless, mm-hmm. and it's a band that is practicing this song on a regular basis now, and are kind of using songs like Foam as a 
kind of a, a testing ground of where they are and how connected they are. And it's, this is the, the show that they're putting forward. It doesn't have as much to do with jamming as we knew in the mid eighties, or as we're going to know in the mid 1990s, the reason you go to see fish is because no other band is playing songs like foam accurately and, and, you know, playing them as aggressively as they are, but tube. Okay. There's a lot here. Uh, this song sounds completely out of step with fish 1990. And it's fascinating to me that this is a song that will not yet reach its peak for seven years. And if you look at the way that they performed it over the first couple of years of its existence, so it's been played 181 times total, 10 times through the end of 1990. Then there's this 111 show gap before it's played on 10, 24, 91, you get an 18, uh, or you get it played 18 times in the fall of 1991 before a 35 show gap before it's played on 41992. And then from 41992 to 12797, Dayton, Ohio, amazing, amazing version of Tube it is played a total of 11 times. So it's like the band wow. doesn't know what to do with Crazy. this song. It is so mm-hmm. fast. It is so. The lyrics are strange. It's very clearly out of John Fishman's mind. And it's until that 12797 show that it almost doesn't click. It's just kind of, mm-hmm. we haven't played this in a while. Let's throw it out there. Um, Shermuth is saying he thinks that I'm going to throw this up on. Can I do this? Do I have the ability to? Yeah. Tube seems like it should have debuted in 1997. Mm-hmm. Sort of a noob. Shermuth, you are you have perfect attendance to HF Pod. You are you are not a noob here. Uh you're blown away to see this as an early 90s song. I always am blown away. I did like a full re-listen of 1992, 93 at one point. And every time you hear tube, it's like the first time you've heard it on that tour. And it sounds totally bizarre and doesn't sound like the band. It's not like they don't know how to play it, but it's it just doesn't totally fit their sound at that point. And then boom, it comes at the end of that Dayton 97 first set and it's like a fully realized part of their catalog. It's so weird. I feel like they've always been like that, like writing songs that like wouldn't come into their own until later points in their career. You know, it's like they've been ahead of their time, even within themselves. It's so crazy. I got this when I was listening to this. I was thinking like, you know, the after Trey like refers to Fishman throughout. um, But I just... I just like the fact that they're like, this is a new song that, you know, he wrote the lyrics to complete nonsense. And they're just like so open to just like playing new material that's not at all like mainstream and just kind of like following their instincts for like, what would be, you know, what should we play tonight? And it's like, let's debut this song that Fishman has wrote the lyrics for that make no sense whatsoever. And, you know, having no real... I don't think it doesn't seem like there was any like, you know, hesitation. It's just like, yeah, we're going to play tube now, um, which is just amazing. They're taking so many risks in this show. I mean, they sound super hungry. And Traven says, I think after Divided Sky, he's like, it's really great to be playing again. It's been a long time because they've been off all summer, like we talked about in the intro. But yeah, I mean, you can really hear them like leaning into that. And Trey's like, keeps saying that, like, thank you for listening to all this new music. We've got a lot of new music and when he introduces the ass festival, he's like, this next tune is called the ass festival. Enjoy. It's just so funny. It's wild to think as well, as you noted, because I was looking at the touring routing this year. This is the last summer 
that at least Trey will not be touring until mm-hmm. 2007. Wow. It's, it's going to be a 16-year, 17-year run of touring, both with Fish, with Tab, 70-Volt Parade, the Grab Tour in 2006. There's so much – like summer is going to define this band in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's the last time as they're entering the 1990s, it's the last time that they're going to not play a summer tour. It's it's really wild. And they do this massive fall tour that um, I know a lot of people have considered their first ever tour. I think you can make the argument 89, they're really doing a big tour. But this is like the first time they're doing a full national touring circuit throughout the year. Um, Brian, to your earlier point, I was going to maybe say this later. I can't remember what song I was listening to, but um, I'll just now because we're talking about this, but Anyone who thinks that Fish was playing flawlessly in terms of composed stuff in the '90s should go back and listen to this show because, like you said, there's there's a lot of like like foam is kind of perfect, but there are some there's some stuff that's not like if, if this if you played this for someone today and you're like this is from Mexico, people would be like Fish fucking sucks now, you know? Like it's like they're you know, they're kind of missing notes. They're kind of missing changes. And, and partially that might be because some of these songs are brand new, but it just reminded me that like, we have this nostalgia of like when, when fish was great <laughs> compositionally, but like they've always been a little all over the map, depending on the year and the day and the, the show. Yeah. The humorous side of them and also the risk taking side. And this is something like we'll get into in the second set. Cause there's a really amazing segment of fully flowing music deep in set two that I did not expect when I pressed play on the show. Um, that sort of stuff is like the, the humor and the improv is not possible without <clears throat> a, a looseness that Trey always talks about going on stage, forgetting everything, not thinking contextually. That's our job to think contextually of like, what does this song in this spot mean? What does this show mean? Mm-hmm. Um, for them, I don't think they're thinking about that really at all. It's, how do we get this to muscle memory? And I think a lot of what they're doing at this state of their career is figuring out how does practice best serve us. And I think it's going to take a couple of years to fully figure this out. But I think to your point, RJ, they're already starting to figure out that practice is not for them to get everything right and then play it exactly that same way on stage. It's to meet the energy of the crowd, build up the energy of the crowd and allow the unknown to happen. And by that whole combination, a lot of bands that nail everything that they play on stage do not think that way. They are giving you a show that is rehearsed within an inch of its life so that you feel what the artist is intending you to feel. Fish wants to be a part of whatever that feeling is. And so you're going to get missed notes here and there. And it reminds me, there was a really funny fantasy tour thread somewhere in mid 2009 2010 when fish's kind of stated goal at the time was to relearn their songs and really rededicate themselves to their songwriting and there was a lot of criticism that they weren't doing that that they weren't even jamming but they also weren't nailing all their compositions and someone went through and put up all the flubs from 1993 and 1994 into like a mix. That's amazing. And you just saw people like collectively pissed off that 1993 fish was not actually perfect. (laughs) Anytime a band is going to debut 39 songs in a year or 12 songs in a show, they are not going to be perfect. Like that is just, it's playing in a way that's just so risky. And I just, 
I, there's no other word for it. I keep trying to think of another word for it, but there's really not. It's so risky to do that. And I don't know many other bands that would do that. And yeah, it's going to lead to flubs, but it also leads to this like crazy energy. And I think that like I was talking about in the intro, like when you are trying to find a way to communicate with your band members in a secret language so you can stop on a dime and start a whole new song within another song, you're trying to play in a different way than, than most bands. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they come a lot. I mean, there's like, there's a lot going on here with these, these debuts. There's, there's a lot, as you mentioned at the beginning, <laughs> Megan, um, of course the ass festival, um, becomes part of Gula eventually there's, it doesn't last very long that, that song, which kind of makes sense because it, it 24 starts, total times played. Yeah. yeah. It starts abruptly. It ends kind of abruptly. It like, it was, it was kind of meant to be part of a, part of a broader song, I think. Um, but that's this, kind of what they were doing then, right? Like finding like parts yeah. of old songs, making them new songs, taking new parts, make, you know, making new songs from that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And then they go into, then they like, you know, without hesitation, go into Antelope, which is just really fun to hear um, how, how far this, how far this song has come. I feel like I'm being nostalgic for our, you know, episode from three weeks ago, but um, this, this song has come a long way. It has. And they're also still to your guys' point, they're still figuring out where do these songs go in the shows. Antelope is going mm. to ultimately become a set closer or often, you know, occasionally an encore piece throwing it midway in a set isn't really something that we expect from this vantage point of seeing fish, but it's, it's an interesting, I kind of wish that they would do this more. I feel like antelope in this slot, like midway through the first set would just elevate the overall energy of a show. And it's kind of one of those songs, you know, we're talking about this push and pull of fish allowing freedom to take over. Plus there's all these heavy compositions Antelope's kind of one of those songs that there's not a ton of complicated compositions to it. Uh, I think this was like the third fish song I learned how to play because I was shocked at like how easy every part of it was. And it's all energy once you get to the back half. It's just like, mm -hmm. how long can you ride that, you know, building peak of a couple of chords? And, and how can you like build up the tension and build it and build it and build it and then have it all, you know, release into the back end, the, the, the Marco Esquandola segment. And this just showcases what that can do in the middle, in the middle of a first set. You talk about all the debuts as well. I haven't noted that after the debut of Buried Alive, a song that feels like fish wallpaper, like it feels like it always just existed and was always there in the water. Um, to have a song like that and a song like stash later in the second set debut. But at the end of buried alive, Trey kind of asked the crowd, are you guys okay with all these debuts? Like, thank you yeah. so much for hanging with us. And thank you so much for allowing us to do this. And it's clear that over the summer, there's a lot of songwriting that's happened and there's a lot of ideas and they're really excited about them. You've got to wonder what it was like in the room with these songs debuting anyone who's there has an idea of what fish is. And now there are new songs that to us, I think when we all started seeing fish, these all felt like fish songs, mm -hmm. but in the moment, these are like brand new ideas that are adding to the overall canon of fish. It's just, it's, it's a really interesting push and pull. Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear buried alive in like the middle to the end of a first set. Like it's to me, it's such an just opener. Like thrown in there. Yeah. Just like, here you go. Um, 
this the the Doobie Brothers cover minute by minute is just I mean <laughs> only played three times all in 1990 I understand why in like three weeks too like just, just, like, just, <laughs> yeah. just totally ridiculous and not even really worth um revisiting I mean except for like hilarities sake I mean at which first is part I was like that. this is kind of cute and then by the end I was like no it's not <laughs> I don't want this anymore <laughs> this and well I guess Trey sings on going down slow but like mm-hmm. both of these songs i think are played at the exact same shows three times over the next three <laughs> yeah. weeks and then never again yeah. going down slow would it seems like be replaced by my soul um whether or not we need another fish <laughs> or blues song you know you guys decide i'm i'm gonna step out to have a smoke during that <laughs> we'll pass too well okay <laughs> there's there's nothing um you know, there's 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 nothing really happening there. But then they then they debut Buried Alive, <laughs> then they debut Paul and Silas, and um, I mean, you know, I, I got I got no problem with these songs. I, I like that they were bringing in bluegrass, as Megan mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Um, and I want to talk about Bouncing Around the Room, but what what else? Mm-hmm. Um, what else with the with these songs before we get to Bouncing Around the Room, Possum? There's something kind of interesting about Paul and Silas. Apparently that in the beginning, Trey was calling this song the wrong name. Until 1992, he was calling it Hall and Solace. And then once they started playing down south, they were corrected. And then they figured out like, oh, it's actually called Paul and Silas. Yeah, he introduces it as a Flat and Scrag song as Hall mm-hmm. and Silas and then sings it. And I, I was listening to it and I had this moment of like – is this, is that the wrong name of the song? Like, like what, 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 you know, and so I started doing like a big Google cause I, I was wondering if like someone had like missed, cause it sounds almost like he says Paul, but yeah, yeah it it's does. Paul and Silas yeah. and it's, it's a funny little addition for a song that, you know, is debuted and it's been played 91 times has played a bunch through 1990, 91, 92, 93. And since 1994 it's been played a handful of times it's kind of one of those hasn't been played since 722 2016 to this point in time it's really one of those rarities that if you catch it uh you're pretty lucky at this point in time to get it so i was looking listening to bounce around the room and thinking about because i was wondering i couldn't remember if it was new this this year or not it was new in 89 um they did play a lot of shows in 1990, but they they played Bounce in 47th. This is the 47th time they played Bounce in in 1990, which wow. is like in in nine months. With, and Trey noted that it's been a long time since they played, which is also funny because it had been like less than three months. But you know, at that at that point in their career, that's like an eternity. You know, yeah. Like now they take three months off between every run, and it's like you know at least. Um, but at least, yeah. Playing it 47 times in nine months with a three month break makes that my math is right 47 times in six months which is like a shit ton do you guys think do you think that they were playing it at the time that much because they were thinking in the back of their minds or or consciously that this is like this has the potential to be a hit or do you think they just liked playing the song or or are those two things the same for me i think that like when i heard this it it sounds so different from what they're playing, the other stuff they're playing. Like it sounds so much more delicate and obviously they're playing at a slower temper, tempo. But to me, they're also singing in a different way than than Trey has been singing in a lot of the, 
you know, late 80s, early 90s. And I'm wondering if it just felt interesting to them, like a new direction. I think you're right. I think they had to be thinking at this point in time with Lawn Boy about to come out. Um, a lot of songs that are going to go on a picture of Nectar are being written. Um, they had to be thinking at this point about some sort of radio crossover. And a song like Bouncing, it was one of the early Fish songs I ever heard. And it was the first Fish mm-hmm. song that I heard where I was like, this sounds like a normal song. Yeah, exactly. You know, where it doesn't sound like they're trying to take rock music and skew it around a bunch and like, you know, mess around with kind of the structure and and you know you're in, you're listening to rock music, but you're also listening to something that you've never actually heard before. Bouncing just sounds like a song that like any band could write, and I don't mean that as a insult in any sort of way, like it's a it's a huge accomplishment that in three minutes time, Trey and Tom were able to concoct something that has a full image. And the end of it is one of my favorite written things that the band has ever written. Um, it's wild. You're talking about, what did you say? 47 times since its debut. I was just going through. So bouncing has been played 478 times at this point in time. Can you guys guess what the biggest gap is? since its debut and and just to clarify it debuted it was a 320th fish show when they debuted this that is Mm -hmm. by far the biggest gap but since then do you guys throw any guess out of what the longest gap is since then what is a city without its music the legacy of the new york philharmonic is incredible nearly two centuries of history that's a lot of music and a lot of stories i was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking i can't quite believe this is happening join me jamie bernstein as we explore the history of the new york philharmonic it's the ny phil story made in new york a podcast about a city its people and their orchestra Listen wherever you get podcasts. Ten, twelve. Nope. I was going to say like twenty-five, but I don't know. Twenty-three times. Wow. Between seven ten twenty nineteen at the Mohegan Sun Arena, uh, summer twenty nineteen, they would not play it again until the first show back in Arkansas, seven twenty-eight. 2021 almost two years Mm. between a live bouncing um but yeah i was going through like there's a 10 show gap here and there there's a 14 show gap here and there but like pretty much this song is every two to five shows for a 33 year period in time it's wild yeah i mean this is the song that like all the people that didn't like fish knew about still so yeah. yeah, it definitely had that crossover. But do you think the band wanted to be on the radio at this point? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Brian Goldenberg, 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 sorry, who just um, put this comment up said that he was saw the Lawn Boy CD party and was supposed to go to the Wetlands, and he said, "I know for sure, chatting with Mike Gordon, that that was supposed to be a single." So you know, clearly they were. I mean, it's their, it's it's like it's one of their best songs. It's possibly their best song, still. My it's second, I think it's top five in terms. My of second life. physical, yeah. uh, cu- like my second physical fish record was a live one, and I bought it. I don't even know why I bought it. I knew I needed to get another <laughs> fish. 
I knew I needed to get something live from Fish because I had heard Rift and I kind of got it and it was called a live one. So I was like, well, this must. Um, and the first song I heard was Bouncing, opening track of the overall record. And I was like, wow, I really like this. And then I think I listened to that on repeat, that and Wilson, and I didn't listen to anything else for like six months. I just would listen to the first songs on each because they're the ones that like just immediately get to you. And the Wilson is such a cool trick. But then like when they go into the 30 minute tweezer, I just couldn't handle that at that point in time. So there was like a six month period of time (laughs) where this was really all I knew of fish. Makes so much sense. I think that you're not alone in that. Um, Okay. Well, I think the, the, they did a good job with this song. I would. I, I would think say it's this a is, great song. I would say, like, with the ex- exception of like maybe one of the songs that came out in the past three years, like "Leaves" or some of this. There's a couple songs on Sigma Oasis that I think are up there in terms of like, in terms of quality songs that could be heard on the radio. I guess is what I mean. Lonely there's trip. waste. Lonely trip. There's waste, of course. Waste and bouncing seem like the the biggest candidates, um, but. This is a, it's a great song, so they they should keep playing it. I, I love I love hearing this song. Me too. Makes me feel really young. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, can we live while we're young or old? Or old. Or old. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so set two. We get a who knows what the set break was like. I bet it was pretty crazy actually, because um, this is a small this is a small venue here, right? Wait, but we didn't talk about possum. Yeah, exactly. It's a good possum to close out a show. They played possum at uh, the Fish for Kids show uh, over the weekend that I took my kids to. And I just had the realization I have every time I hear possum live. How can you not dance when this song is playing? Right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you can stand there with your arms crossed, you know, that's another option. Well, that's how I stand for every other part of the show except for possum. Oh, yeah. I, fr- I was talking to a friend who went to a show here in Philly, an indie rock show, and we're like, everyone was just like standing around. And I was like, that's <laughs> that's the that's what you have to do if you go to an indie rock show, or else you might get kicked out. <laughs> if you look like you're having fun, you're screwed, man. You're not cool at all. No. Um, okay, Mike's song, Hydrogen, Wikipedia Groove, and then we get a seven minute Magilla debut, which is um, which is pretty like that was. You know, do you remember the the meme, Brian? Um, and maybe it wasn't a meme. Maybe it's just someone on Twitter used to say, "Play some jazz," and then use a word that I won't use on the on the broadcast. <laughs> I do. I I feel like that guy sometimes. Yeah, me too. Which is like, come <laughs> on, guys! Like you can do it. And and there's there's this, and then later there's take the A train, and you know, it just this is like a really pretty awesome um, debut. And clearly, like we learned from um, Alive Again that Trey was spending, you know, significant amounts of time on things like this, right? He was, he was clearly like spending time on the charts and really like making sure that this, these songs were plotted out note for note. And um, this is a, it's cool. It's cool to hear a a debut, but also that they were like just into it and and stretching it out. Yeah. And afterwards we get, uh, that was a debut it was a song Paige wrote this summer and we get like the applause through the room and we get like the acknowledgement of Paige, you know, emerging as a songwriter within the band um, before we go into 
well, I don't, I don't know if we need more build up before the next one. I think ultimately, <laughs> Magia or Magilla is like one of those songs. That I've never actually seen it live. I'm just pulling up the stats on how it's only been played 71 times. The last time it was regularly played was 5 4, 1994. That was like 19, spring 94 is the last time we really heard this song in any sort of a rotation. Since then, we've had one, two, three four, five, six, seven total performances. The last time this song was played was uh, 7-22-2003 from Deer Creek. It came out of a Carini and went into Possum in a very strange, uh, slotted way. But I would love to hear this song come back. Strange. Yeah, me too. Strange tour. I think this is, like we've talked a lot recently over the past couple of years about songs that go back and forth between Tab and fish and now like you know tab is playing a ton more fish songs but i think this song has has pretty permanently transitioned to just being a tab song yeah, i don't think we'll i don't think, think we'll ever hear it again mm, really there. probably not unless we get a horns yeah yeah so before the next song trey goes okay we told you that there were going to be a lot of new songs and here's another just like, pff, here's another one. At this point, he's probably just like, shit, are we actually going to play all these new songs? Like, got yeah. a couple people in the crowd who are like, can you just do what you used to do, guys? Like, before this, like back when you guys used to be that band that we saw at Nectar's. Yeah. Um, the Jaded it's Vets. Called the Jaded Vets of 1990. It's yeah. called Stash. And he doesn't even emphasize it. Like, I'm providing incorrect em- uh, an emphasis, yeah. uh, emphasis there. Trey just goes, it's called Stash. And like, my thought when that happened, and then you just hear that boo doo 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 I mean. I was just like, like, I felt like um, there's there's a, there's a that gif of the guy, uh, I think it's Tim from, or it's Eric from Tim and Eric, who's like, he's got the whole universe around him. He's just like, with like everything just exploding <laughs> around him. Like that was me when that was happening. Cause I'm just like, this is not ho-hum stash. Like this is a song that is going to define a actual musical approach that the band is going to take over the next four years that is going to be all of their jamming is going to be built around the idea of tension and release and how do we build tension and can we build it with melody? Can we build it with noise and what happens when we actually build up all this energy in the room and then it spills out and everybody, you know, relishes in it. Um, but also like I started thinking about, you know, the eleven fourteen ninety five version and the seven two ninety seven version and the, New Year's Eve 2003 version and like what this song is going to contain in terms of jamming exploration and what the song is going to mean for this band as they grow and as they evolve and as they change and as they go through challenges and even where this song is now. Like think about the Mexico version that absolutely fucking rocks. So fucking good. Yeah, definitely this a highlight. This song 33 years later is still paying off for this band and he just kind of debuts it middle of the second set Whoever's hanging around, we're going to keep playing new songs for you guys. Here's another one. It's just called Stash. And boom, it's right there. <laughs> Epic. What does this song mean to you guys? I mean, this is the debut of this song. Like, what, what does Stash mean to you guys as Fish fans? Stash is like when things get weird. You know, Stash mm-hmm. is like, I think when they play Stash well, it usually means the show's going to be good. I think Stash to me is like, 
I just remember I used to like, when I first started to go see fish and they would play stash, I would dance like, I would just feel like I was like a secret agent. And there was like, I don't know, I was just like on a mission. And I just remember just like getting low and like creeping around. And there's just, this song is like a whole vibe. It's like a whole atmosphere, a whole universe. And I think it's one of those like dank, dark universes that only fish could make. You know, to me, it's like the portal into like evil fish. We just have to note Sherman's comment. Where is Jonathan for the stash discussion? This is unacceptable. Jonathan could not be here today because he said this is the debut of stash and it's too much for me. And I'm going to divert the entire conversation (laughs) towards stash. So we're kind of doing that for him, but uh, it was just, it was too much. I remember um, in 2013, Ed being at Meriwether for uh, 714, 2013. And this was like, I'd seen fish every year, you know, since they came back several shows, but this is when I really started. It's like a month after we launched the podcast and I was really like getting back into, into fish and they played stash in the first set. And it's a really good one. And it's so good. It just reminded me that like this song is just, it, like you said, Megan, it's an interesting way to put it. I don't think I would have explained it that way, but like, it's, it's something that only fish could do like taking you in this, on this crazy journey. And it's, um, yeah, one of the fishiest fish, fish songs, which is like, I guess if we're allowed to say that, that, that's the best, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. It's a song that like, like that Meriwether version is a perfect example of it. That was at a point in the tour where they had kind of figured out what they could do, you know, building off of the successes of late August, 2012. And, you know, they have a really great start to the show and then they throw it on stash and it just has this opportunity for them to explore. And that, that version, I think is, it's one of my favorite versions or one of my favorite performances of that entire summer tour. Uh, Cause it really showcased, you know, the freedom that they were playing with. But I remember when I, finally left bouncing around the room and Wilson and started exploring other songs on a live one. That version of stash from seven, eight 94 is right there. Mm. The second track on the first disc. And that is like, that is the archetypal tension and release jam. And they just perfectly, perfectly build that up. And while I couldn't communicate what they were doing at the time, I was like, whatever just happened. I want to hear that again. Agreed. So that starts it starts us on this journey uh, with Stash we're, that we're still on. Like you mentioned, the Mexico version was great. Um, okay, there's some other stuff. And then I already talked about Take the A-Train. And then the Dude of Life comes out. And then they do Double Encore. What but did I, I miss? Well, we have to talk about wow, the wow, debut. Hold on. Rewind. Rewind. We have to go back to ACDC Bag. This is one of the like gem segments that we have discovered. So I, I, I've maybe listened to this show once, but I cannot remember listening to it. Anyone who's, who has not listened to 913, 1990, who's listening to this show, please, if you're, if you're going to do anything, press play on the Okipa ceremony and do not let up until Reba is over because specifically mm-hmm. the segment of Okipa, ACDC bag back into buried alive, fucking second performance of buried alive in the same show that it was debuted right into take the H rain into sparks. The first spark since November 5th, 1988 
221 shows, and then Reba. This is a segment of music that is like pulled right out of 1993 Fish. I cannot believe that they play this in 1990. Everything I've ever heard, everything I've ever thought about 1990 Fish was just completely ripped apart when I listened to this segment today. And I I went back, re-listened to it. I was totally blown away. It is fluid. It is creative. It 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 it, it doesn't even think about efficiency. It just thinks about creativity and being in the moment. Like as I was listening to it, I heard, and I have a question about this that we'll we'll talk about here in a little bit. But I heard fish like three, four, five years into the future, right here mm. in the at the tour opening performance in 1990. It was amazing. Yeah, I you mean, can't yada yada this. No, RJ. Like when they're playing ACDC bag and they're just like giving it to the lyrics. They're like having so much fun singing this song, and then they're like jamming in a little bit, and then you hear Trey do the the like secret language signal. And then he plays the first line of Buried Alive, and then boom, they're all immediately back into Buried Alive. It's just, it's phenomenal what it takes to do that as a band, especially a song that they've just played for the first time tonight. Then they're playing Buried Alive again, Trey does the signal again, and plays the first line of Take the A-Train, and boom, they're in a jazz song, Take the A-Train. Like, what the fuck? Who can do that? It's amazing. And then they play Sparks by The Who. I want to hear this song 14 times played. You never heard Sparks? No. Last time played was one of my two or three favorite fish shows I've ever attended. Yeah, Which you guys on the S show in 2011 or 2016? 12, 1230, 2016. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. I haven't seen it either, but I thought Megan, as a, as a more well traveled person, would have seen it. <laughs> that's so a good, that's, that's a really good show, the 1230, 16. Oof. Yeah. Um, it's a great cover. It's such it's amazing. a amazing cover. I think, I think it's gone it for good also. You do? No, it was in 2016. So. That doesn't mean for good. I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just sharing my opinions on this I think it's record. one of those at this point because <laughs> if you're looking at this, so this version is the first in 221 shows. It won't be played again for 392 shows, August 2nd, 93. Then it's played nine shows later, 81493 in the middle of that crazy 45-minute antelope. 41 shows played at the Bomb Factory, 65 shows played 102994, a show that we discussed here a couple of years ago on HF Pod. Then it goes 173 shows, 112996, the Cow Palace, great old dead venue. Um, 463 shows, it appears at the S show, and then 201 shows, uh, 1230, 2016. One of those it can only be played on a 1230 type of shows. I feel like this yeah. is one of those songs that someone needs to like nudge Mike pre-show and be like, Hey, you guys haven't played sparks in, in seven years now. Like you just gotta, let's just do it. Just do it. RJ, RJ, that's, that's your job. <laughs> is that my job? Yeah. All right, fine. I'll do it. Um, okay, the last time I talked to Mike, he told me I looked like his, uh, the contractor building his studio in his house. So I feel like the next time I see him, and his contractor's <laughs> name was Brian as well. And it was this very strange <laughs> moment where Mike was having a moment and I was like, can you just let me have a moment, dude? Like, yeah, you're, he was like, sorry, you know? I'm the one supposed I'm, to be having a moment right now. Right. Not anymore. Um, okay. So one thing, you know. I, so I know the dude of life pretty well at this point because I've seen a bunch of shows with them and stuff. And I kind of forgot, like, he's his singing is really good. He's got a great yeah. style. Yeah, these are I fun. Kinda like, yeah. I kind of, you know, I had that album back in the day, but um, so did I haven't I. Like, listened so did to I. it a lot. It's good. 
I think those songs are really good. I don't really remember much of it, but I definitely had it. I mean, they're obviously like self. The first song they play, the riff from that becomes the riff for Chuck for Chuck yeah. Dust. But it's fun to songs, hear it like slower. Yeah, you can. Yeah, hear the it. songs are great. I, I had this fun could have been that. a radio hit. Like the lyrics, like "Welcome to the '90s." Hope you make it through. I mean, yeah. this is a real yeah. 1990s like cheesy song. Like I don't know. Here we are. Great. It's the yeah. '90s. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I like this album. I remember getting it early on as a Fish fan. I think to your guys' point, like there's almost a weird what if of could Fish <laughs> be a really strong backing band for like a really charismatic lead singer? Mm. Um, I don't, I'm glad that they didn't ultimately do that. But like if you could imagine them just focusing on chops, like basically being sessions musicians, I mean, that's not where any of us would want them to go, but it, it gives you that weird kind of what if of what, what could this band ultimately do if they decided to chase record deals and to chase, you know, a little bit more kind of stability mm. than the path that they went down. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 glad everything worked out how it did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the Holdsworth thing. It's like they didn't really need to be a two guitar band. It was not gonna. I think through this project, we're like we're going quickly, but like thoroughly through, and we're like you know, like I think everything worked out how it was supposed to. Yeah, this but is I a fun way to end the set, though. I would welcome a 40th anniversary dude of life sit in. Uh, totally <laughs> that would be really fun that'd be, be really really fun, really fun. they could yeah. do the whole album maybe at MSG I think Trey would have to check on the audience about four songs in but um, I could do like a dude of life encore appearance you know playing a couple of these songs play two or three dude of life songs that'd be a hell of a like lot an of encore mm-hmm. yeah that'd be great I mean there's there's some good like Dahlia is great I think that was probably mm-hmm. the the highlight. Crimes mm-hmm. of the Mind. They they have played. Um, I think I saw Since Crimes then. of the Mind. Um, really? I did. I saw it in two thousand nine. I saw oh, the I two. They played it three times since ninety four. I saw two of those three, which is wow. crazy. They, <laughs> That's crazy. Three times since ninety four. So they played it. Uh, Eleven twenty nine oh nine. Yep. Ten twenty eight sixteen. Yep. And what's the other one that I'm forgetting? Eleven twenty eight oh three. That was the uh, first yeah. and they played that with the dude. With with the dude, yeah. 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 He came out for that. That version. was a weird that I hope the I hope the I hope the fortieth is uh different than than the thirtieth or whatever. No, twentieth. The twentieth. Like I, I went to that Albany. show and then I went to the Albany show when Holdsworth came out and it was just sort of like <laughs> it was yeah. kind of weird. It was just sort of strange. Um sit-ins don't usually work with this band. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And also they were like, you know, things were weird then. Um, Okay, so that's Double Encore, Lizards, LaGrange. Um, This was a fun show. I'm glad we chose this one. I feel like this had a lot more like, there's some context here for this year that maybe we wouldn't have gotten with some of the other shows. So Mm -hmm. I feel like this was a good choice by us. I'm proud of us. (laughs) It was so fun to listen to this show. Yeah, this was a... I don't want to say shockingly fun, but like this was an incredibly fun show. I'm just looking through the next few shows. We're going to get more debuts here this, this week. Um, They're going to play in Providence where they're going to debut destiny Unbound. They're going to debut Eliza in Keene, New Hampshire. And that 
then everything is just kind of how do we integrate these songs into oh we'll get gumbo's debut on 928 1990 um but the band is going to be doing a huge tour around the northeast for and they're going to start to go south as we move into the fall of 1990 this is a huge huge tour that they're on you know they're debuting all of these songs and mm-hmm. they're going to play this stunning Halloween run in Colorado, really reassert themselves in Colorado as kind of their second home base, this second region that they can come back to over and over again. Um, it's There's just a lot happening at this point in Fish history that goes beyond the music that's being played on the stage. Like it, it, They're really setting themselves up for the decade in a really cool way, which who knows what their expectations are at this point in time for, you know, their overall career, but you can see kind of the formula taking shape. We talked a lot throughout the eighties shows about the formula of what a fish show sounds like and how does a fish show flow? How do their songs flow? Is this going to be a band that primarily jams or is this going to be a band that focuses on compositions? It feels like that's all been sorted out at this point in time. It's now, how do we expand the amount of people that want to hear us? Yeah, I agree. That's kind of what I was saying in the beginning. Like last year was like expansion, like stretching out to new parts of the country. And this year is just like hustle, like playing all the shows you can, writing all the music you can, debuting all the new stuff. I mean, they're they're working really hard. It's an exciting time. Do you think at this point, none of us can know this. So I'm just curious, you guys skipped the speculations on this. Do you think at this point that they were happy to be where they were at? Or do you think that there was an element of stress? Because I, I almost wonder to what you just said, Megan, like uh, you almost get the sense that Trey was like, I got to get everything that I've ever thought down onto paper. And like, mm-hmm. I have to get every song written at this point in time, which is why there's so many debuts. But do you guys think that like they were happy with where they were at at this point or there was like added stress and added pressure? I think they were... Okay. I think they were happy. I think they were they were about to go to Colorado. They were they were touring all year. They're clearly writing new music. I think they were I think they were having a blast. Yeah, that's what I think too. And you know, when you read about kind of their intentions at this time, they weren't like, we gotta get a record contract. We gotta do this. You know, they were skeptical about that stuff. I think they were just more like, we have to write music, we have to play all the time. Like, and I think it was probably what they wanted to do. And, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brad. Well, I was going to follow up on that because I was thinking about this today. So I think, I think you, I, I'm on the same page with you guys. I feel like this is like for, for, in a lot of ways, this is like as most success as they probably imagined themselves getting when mm-hmm. they started doing this in 83, 84, 85. Um, but obviously, like so much of fish is de- de- is um, defined by what happened in the 1990s. And you ask any fish fan for their favorite shows, nine times out of ten, people don't have the balls to say anything outside of the 1990s. <laughs> like, they just don't uh, for a variety of reasons. We're at the onset of the decade that will arguably be their peak, both in terms of the music that they write in terms of the shows that they play in terms of their notoriety. Um, what do you guys think are expectations? Like what would be realistic expectations that they would have at this point in time for this decade? Because to me, the idea that they would end the decade 
nine years later playing to 80,000 people, a seven hour show in Florida is absolutely like nobody's even conceiving of anything <laughs> like that, let alone, you know, playing Madison Square Garden. Like what, what do you think is a realistic expectation for this band as they stand here going into the 90s? I have no Maybe idea. Maybe just that they don't have to have day jobs ever. Yeah. I think that's probably <laughs> think all that's they it. wanted, right? Like we just don't want to have a day job. So like as long as we can just make enough money to like keep getting better gear and like keep writing music and keep having fun playing music together. I mean, they don't ever seem like they were trying to get things, do things except for write really good music and play better and sound better. I mean, it seems like everything that they made, they put the money back into like equipment, you know, or like the light rig or, you know, touring stuff to tour with. Like, I feel like they really were just trying to keep doing, being able to do what they were doing. Yeah, um, I mean, what Brian Goldenberg says this is exactly right. They were always happy where they were. They couldn't believe people are coming to see them. And that is 100% how I felt when I saw them fall in 1994 in in a small theater in Michigan. And I thought like they seemed just so excited by the fact that people were there and were excited about it. And they were like a month off from playing Madison square garden for the first time at that point. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, that's always been there. I think why they've been so successful, you know, they weren't ever trying to gun for something that made them inauthentic in any way. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. Um, so what do you think? Well, I guess I have a, I mean, this hasn't even, they haven't even done the giant country horns tour yet. You know, they, there's so, there's so much that they haven't done that like we're, we will talk about, but I mean, that's, that's where this thought came for me. Cause and and Jeff Katz has a great comment here as a 20 year old at the time, 1990 was pure magic. Each time I saw them, we were having a blast. The band looked like they were having so much fun. Stan, the man says never buying cheese again. I mean, these are all, uh, (laughs) these are all important (laughs) achievements and important levels. I, I, I really hope that Stan is referencing, um, uh, deep, deep seated HF pod jokes at this point in time, because if you, if you're listening that well, thank you. Um, (laughs) I think I agree with all, with what you guys are saying. And to your point, RJ, like, um, the idea, like a year from now, they're going to play the giant country horns. Two years from now, they're going to open up for Santana. Three years from now, they're going to start to play amphitheaters. Four years from now, they're going to play Madison square garden. Five years, they're going to play twice at Madison square garden. Like there's just so much that's going to be piled on top. I can't wait to do these shows for these years. It's going to be Well, That's why like I was thinking about this is like, they've achieved so much, like for so many bands playing a venue like the wetlands in New York city and having a full room of people who you introduce your drummer as zero man. And (laughs) the place is like, yeah, fuck yeah, more of that. You know, like people are super into live long and prosper. (laughs) (laughs) like people are so into this and there's a part of it it's kind of like that point in like the rock biopic where like the story is told into this point in time and then all of the 90s will be one big uh montage and we'll get to like the troubled periods but like this is where like all the work has been achieved and rather than coasting i think to something you said earlier meg 
I don't think that they necessarily care about the success, which is why they're just pouring all of the money that is being made and all the resources that they now have access to and the time that they can dedicate this. That's all being poured into the project. And it's going to be a nine-year period in time where everything that these guys think about outside of their families is fish. And I think that that's part of what will lead ultimately to them taking a break after after 2000. But it's also like they're on the onset of like every show that we pick from here on out is going to just be a band like leveling up once again and again, even if that's not what they're consciously thinking. Yeah. And, and next week we will be back as you may predict with 1991 and we don't know what, we don't know what um, what show we're going to choose because we like to figure that out, you know, later. So I hope you guys will <laughs> join us, and we'll we'll have Jonathan back hopefully next next Monday. Um, Brian, Megan, thank you both. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I loved all the comments today, especially Brian and Jeff and others who were there during this time. Yeah, so keep thank keep you sharing so your memories and anyone who's listening, send us send us thoughts. If you were at some of these early shows, we want to want to hear from you. Otherwise, we will uh, see you all next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.